A new United Nations report warns the impacts of climate change are increasing and inevitable. Experts say that we have until 2030 to avoid catastrophe. Temperatures in the Arctic have warmed about two to three times the global average. It will be very difficult and impossible for our children to control climate change. This is South of Two Degrees, and I am your host, Brian Barnes. It is so good to have you with us today on the only podcast dedicated to bringing unfiltered scientific research to the forefront of the climate conversation. We've got a great show for you today as we dive into the 30 by 30 plan and the science behind it. Know what that is? Well, you will shortly. So my friends, once more, into the fray. Welcome back, and I've got to tell you, I am so excited about today's show, not just because we're coming off such a fun interview with South of Two Degrees' newest team member and lead data scientist, Sarah, last week, which, if you missed, you should definitely check it out and especially pop over to the blog at southofdewdegrees.org and read her latest perspective on COVID and climate change, but more so because in pulling the information for today's show, things went, well, A little different than usual. A little behind-the-scenes action here. But normally, when the team preps a show, we look at the body of peer-reviewed and responsibly published papers, usually those that have just come out, and identify a few that may be of interest to you. We then select one and then get really technical in breaking it down such that it doesn't lose its integrity, and then do the same with any supporting papers to give you the whole picture. And that's well before recording, post-production, etc. This week, it wasn't that straightforward. We had actually chosen a separate topic, which we'll dive into in a later show, but in researching the supporting scientific papers, we came upon the proverbial rabbit hole. And as any good scientist, engineer, or explorer can tell you, when you find one, you kind of feel compelled to look inside. This one, though, was deep. And I mean really deep. And while there is more than enough material to keep us busy for the next several months, as always, we'll do our best to break it down in a show for you. Okay, Brian, so you've got my attention, but what's this rabbit hole already? Well, it starts with the simplest of things, 30 by 30. Know what that is? While some of you might, most I'm guessing do not. 30 by 30 refers to conserving 30% of the land and ocean in a natural state by the year 2030. Straightforward, right? Well, on the surface, yes, but let's look into that rabbit hole to better understand its scientific underpinnings, history, impact, commensurate global programs, and what the combined picture really looks like. Ready to dive in? I bet you are. So let's go. It starts with scientific underpinnings, of course, right, or we wouldn't discuss it on the show, but before we dig into the details of our litany of papers today, let's look back at a high-level timeline for a little bit better perspective. In November of 1988, the United Nations Environmental Program, or UNEP, convened an ad hoc working group of experts on biological diversity. Based on their initial work, a group was formed the next year to prepare international legal instruments. That work culminated on the 22nd of May, 1992, at the Nairobi Conference, and the document was opened for signatures two weeks later at the Rio Earth Summit. There are currently 168 signatories and 196 parties to the document, and I'll give you one guess as to who hasn't signed on. Now, if you're thinking the Holy See, you aren't wrong, 
but that's not who I was alluding to. Now, out of that document, a recurring conference of parties was started with the 15th one, or COP15, scheduled to be held in China Q2 of this year. Now, keep in mind, this is separate from COP26, or the UN Conference on Climate Change, that's scheduled to be held in November of this year in Glasgow, Scotland. I get it. The whole COP soup can get confusing, but all you really need to know is that the one on biodiversity feeds into, in a way, the one on climate change. Now, within the Convention on Biological Diversity, or CBD, and calm yourself, it's not the same, but no, I can hear you snickering. Anyway, within the CBD, there are 20 specific targets. Now, I won't rattle them all off, but I will see if we can get a link thrown up on the website, southof2degrees.org, for you to take a look at. The important item of note here, though, is according to the latest report, which was published on the 18th of August, 2020, none of the targets have been fully achieved on a global level. However, six have been partially achieved. According to the report, quote, solutions need to seek an integrated approach that simultaneously address the conservation of the planet's genetic diversity, species, and ecosystems, the capacity of nature to deliver material benefits to human societies, and the less tangible but highly valued connections with nature that help to define our identities, cultures, and beliefs, end quote. Further, the report states, quote, These pathways to a sustainable future rely on recognizing that bold, interdependent actions are needed across a number of fronts, each of which is necessary and none of which is sufficient on its own, end quote. And finally, quote, Biodiversity is critical to both the 2030 Agenda for Sustainable Development and the Paris Agreement under the United Nations Framework Convention on Climate Change, each adopted in 2015, end quote. Now influenced by his own work and that of the CBD, renowned biologist E.O. Wilson introduced in his 2016 book, Half Earth, the idea of conserving 50% of the land area on the planet for nature. He argued that should we do so, we could save 90% of species from extinction. Sound crazy? Actually, not really. Keep in mind, though, we aren't talking about drawing a single line across the planet and saying this is for humans and everything else over here. Rather, while achievable, it becomes extremely complicated. Go figure thus giving rise to a 2017 paper titled An Eco-Region-Based Approach to Protecting Half of the Terrestrial Realm. Now, while this paper is extremely important, I'm going to gloss over it in favor of a subsequent and more detailed paper, which we'll get to in a minute. While I'll make sure a link gets tossed up on the website, I want to give you the big takeaway before we move on. The Earth is divided into 846 terrestrial ecoregions nested within 14 biomes. And there's your fun fact for the day. Of those 846, only 98 ecoregions, or 12%, exceed half-protected status. 313 ecoregions, or 37%, fall short of half-protected, but have sufficient unaltered habitat remaining to reach the target. And 207 ecoregions, or 24%, are in peril, where an average of only 4% of the natural habitat remains. Further, the paper proposed what they called a global deal for nature. Now, this is a term you're going to hear over and over again, as it will most likely be a significant topic at COP26 in Glasgow. In the author's own words, a global deal for nature is, quote, a companion to the Paris climate deal to promote increased habitat protection and restoration, national and eco-region scale conservation strategies, and empowerment of indigenous peoples to protect their sovereign lands. The goal of such an accord would be to protect half the terrestrial realm by 2050, to 
halt the extinction crisis while sustaining human livelihoods, end quote. Okay, hold up, Brian. You started talking about 30 by 30, but now you're rattling off information about 50 by 50? Which is it? You may be asking. So what I'll tell you is that you're very astute for catching that, and I assure you it'll make sense by the end of the show. If, on the off chance it doesn't, feel free to reach out. I'll be more than happy to chat. So we'll get to the 30 by 30 in a few minutes, but I want to first do a deep dive into the science behind the thought process that centers around the 50 by 50. So with that, let's dive into the science using the paper titled A Global Deal for Nature, Guiding Principles, Milestones, and Targets, published in Science Advanced. 19th of April 2019. The major premise here is that it is nigh impossible to stay below the climate target of 1.5 degrees C if current trends in habitat conversion and emissions do not peak by 2030 and will likely require a moratorium on land conversion by 2035. Why? Well, beyond 1.5 degrees C, and especially if we don't stay south of 2 degrees, it is clear to science that the biology of the Earth becomes gravely threatened and ecosystems begin to unravel. Now, why did I skip the first paper to discuss this one? Well, while the first paper today laid the groundwork, it only focused on the biology of the terrestrial realm. Hard to skip over the oceans, lakes, and rivers, don't you think? So why do it and connect it to the Paris Accord? Well, a growing body of research documenting the inherent interconnection between carbon sequestration and biodiversity lends further support for a proposal to pair a GDN with the Paris Accord. Carbon-rich ecosystems, by definition, sequester the most carbon from the atmosphere, and it is no coincidence that some of the most carbon-rich ecosystems on land, natural forests, also harbor high levels of biodiversity. Sure. Forests, especially tropical ones, sequester twice as much carbon as planted monocultures, and despite only covering 7% of the land area, about two-thirds of all species on Earth are found in natural forests. But it might come as a surprise that even in savannas, our ancient grasslands are extremely species-rich and store approximately as much carbon globally as forests. On a quick aside, what makes natural savannas so fascinating is that most of grassland carbon is stored below ground, making it highly secure and a reliable carbon sink, especially in the face of increased climate-related wildfires. Okay, so how is a global deal for nature laid out? Well, it obviously starts with science guidance, and based on that, there are five fundamental goals. They are, one, represent all native ecosystem types in successional stages across the natural range of variation. Two, maintain viable populations of all native species in natural patterns of abundance and distribution. Three, maintain ecological function and ecosystem services. Four, maximize carbon sequestration by natural ecosystems and five, address environmental change to maintain evolutionary processes and adapt to the impacts of climate change. Now, I know that may be a little verbose. Well, more than a little. So let me simplify that for you. In layman's terms, we need to protect biodiversity, mitigate climate change, and reduce major threats. So let's look at the first today and save the other two for another time. Protecting biodiversity seems easy enough, right? (laughs) 
The world isn't a simple place, and when you think about it, biodiversity isn't evenly distributed. This is why we must circle back to those 846 ecoregions and set targets not only on global levels, but also on ecoregional levels as well. Yet, this is where it gets even trickier. In fact, the paper identifies two major risks as we pursue this path. These are, one, adding more land to reach the global target that is similar to what is already accounted for at the expense of underrepresented habitats and species, and two, the temptation by some governments to protect low-conflict areas that may be lower priority from a biodiversity perspective. Now further, if we are setting goals by ecoregions, then it makes sense that some countries will have to protect significantly more than other countries. Funny how nature doesn't take into account our own national boundaries, huh? That is why it's imperative to fully connect a global deal for nature to the Paris Accord, such that we can work as a global community to achieve such an ambitious goal. So Brian, shoot me straight here. Is it financially viable? How do we get there? And are you ever going to get back to the 30 by 30 bit? Well, the quick answer to the first question is yes, but you also need to consider all the inputs. According to the paper, gross costs for nature conservation across half the globe could be upwards of 100 billion US dollars per year. Now, before you laugh at me for saying that's viable, consider the direct benefits from biodiversity conservation. In the seafood industry alone, it's a boon of 53 billion US dollars per year. And if you look at insurance, well, now you're talking about 4.3 trillion US dollars. Easy? Heck no. Viable? Yes. As for how do we get there, well, as much as I'd like to spend the next month just breaking down this piece, I'll give you a high-level synopsis, and that starts by bringing back the 30 by 30 bit. Now, the goal of a global deal for nature would be to fully protect and preserve 30% of the natural world, land, and ocean by 2030, and expand on that by creating climate stabilization areas over an additional 20%. These CSAs would concentrate in habitats like mangroves, a topic we'll cover later this season, tundra, other peatlands ancient grasslands, and the boreal and tropical rainforest biomes that store vast reserves of carbon and other greenhouse gases and prevent large-scale land cover change. Now, while I won't dive into it today, we need to keep in mind the need for climate corridors as well, which we touched on back in episode 9 of last year, which is worth going back and listening to if you're interested in how that plays in. Further, we need to consider indigenous peoples' lands, which accounts for 37% of all remaining natural lands across the earth. And these lands store greater than 293 gigatons of carbon. Now, natural lands used to be considered devoid of humans, but we need to rethink that definition as much of that indigenous land has been sustainably managed for thousands of years, and we could learn a lot by incorporating the insights, rights, and voices of indigenous people the world over. Now, with all that out of the way, we've come back to just a couple of weeks ago. Sure, President Biden began the process to bring the U.S. back into the Paris Accord and move to restore national monument boundaries in his very first executive action on January 20th. But while that was all over the news, it was what was buried in two sections, Section 215 and 216 of his executive order on the 27th of January, that I believe to be much more significant. In it, Section 216 reads, quote, Conserving our nation's lands and waters. A. The Secretary of Interior 
Interior in consultation with the Secretary of Agriculture, the Secretary of Commerce, the Chair of the Council on Environmental Quality, and the heads of other relevant agencies shall submit a report to the task force within 90 days of the date of this order recommending steps that the United States should take working with the state, local, tribal, and territorial governments, agricultural and forest landowners, fishermen, and other key stakeholders to achieve the goal of conserving at least 30% of our lands and waterways by 2030, end quote. In short, the U.S. just committed to the 30 by 30 strategy. Now, Sally Jewell, the U.S. Secretary of Interior from 2013 to 2017, said, quote, 30 by 30 means protecting the best, but it's also about improving the rest, end quote. Now, currently, the U.S. conserves 26% of its coastal waters, yet only 12% of its land. And again, this doesn't include indigenous land. That means in order to meet the 30 by 30 target, it would require conserving an additional area two times the size of Texas over the next decade. If you want numbers, that means an additional 440 million acres or 178 million hectares of protected area. What's the secret to pulling off such a massive feat? Well, it starts by basing the decision on sound science and not political expediency. Crazy, you say? Well, it's actually been in process behind the scenes for several years. In fact, the Weiss Foundation committed $1 billion U.S. dollars to the 30 by 30 strategy back in 2018 under the name the Weiss Campaign for Nature. Still, you may be thinking, sounds great, but where does the manpower come from? Well, that I believe to be the most exciting and least mentioned part of President Biden's executive order on the 27th of January. Remember I mentioned Section 215? Well, 215 reads as follows, quote, Civilian Climate Corps. In furtherance of the policy set forth in Section 214 of this order, the Secretary of the Interior, in collaboration with the Secretary of Agriculture and the heads of other relevant agencies, shall submit a strategy to the task force within 90 days of the date of this order for creating a Civilian Climate Corps initiative within existing appropriations to mobilize the next generation of conservation and resilience workers and maximize the creation of accessible training opportunities and good jobs. The initiative shall aim to conserve and restore public lands and waters, bolster community resilience, increase reforestation, increase carbon sequestration in the agricultural sector, protect biodiversity, improve access to recreation, and address the changing climate, end quote. Now, to understand the significance of this, we need to go back once again, but this time to 1933, as U.S. President Franklin D. Roosevelt worked to pull the U.S. out of the grips of the Great Depression, exacerbated by the Dust Bowl. Remember that one from episode 15 of Regen Ag? Well, he formed the Civilian Conservation Corps. From 1933 to 1942, three million U.S. men served in it as part of the New Deal. It had such broad support that it was considered beyond politics. While it had its faults, despite being initially integrated, it did fall prey to political forces at the time and eventually segregated the camps. Further, while Eleanor Roosevelt pleaded with her husband, women weren't allowed to join. That said, if you take a walk in any of the United States, state or national parks today, you're likely going to walk on a trail cut by the Civilian Conservation Corps or even enjoy a snack or a quick nap under a shelter built by them. Enter the modern CCC, changing the word in the middle from conservation to climate. A bold and exciting path for the United States. What will it ultimately look like? 
No one at this point really knows, especially since the two secretaries developing the plan have yet to be confirmed by the U.S. Senate. Regardless, though, it'll be something worth watching, and I'll be sure to keep you updated. So I know we're long today, but I promised you a rabbit hole, didn't I? And believe me when I say we just scratched the surface. The path to protecting the rich diversity of this planet is a bold one that is complex beyond measure, but it is summarized beautifully in the three simple words that I want you to remember, 30 by 30. Some countries are well on their way. Australia has a well-laid-out biodiversity strategy through 2030 that is worth a read. However, they aren't alone. Many nations around the globe that are party to CBD have them as well. New Zealand, not surprisingly, has one of the best-laid-out plans I've seen. Here in the U.S., we're having to play catch-up, but with the national adoption of a 30-by-30 strategy and a soon-to-be-formed Civilian Climate Corps to lead the work, I think we are well on our way. But for now, that wraps up another episode of South of Two Degrees. I hope you came away as fascinated as the team here at South of Two Degrees was and just as hungry for more. Remember, you can always check out the links to all the cited information from today or any show on the website. And I look forward to having you back again with me next week. And aside from checking out all the latest information on the website, blog, Facebook, LinkedIn, Twitter, and Instagram, do this for me. Tell one other person about this show in the next week. Have at least one conversation about climate change with someone else. And above all, keep it south of two degrees.